the other part of Hawaii is that it's, it's very, there's a long history of why this is, but like it's a very mixed race, mixed culture. Everything's mixed, culturally diverse. It's really a model of diversity in many ways. And so I was used to that. So then I went to the mainland and, you know, I wanted to connect. I, there was a part of me that was like something here in the mainland is missing, this cultural diversity and community and people treating friends and, and cousins like, or friends and associates like family. And so that ohana, as you, as you hear it in many of these movies lately, was something that was dear to me that I wanted to somehow manifest. And that when I discovered this field of new urbanism, which is essentially new realm of planning that was, it's about you know, creating more walkable places and places for uh, people to connect and create a stronger sense of community. That was like, oh yeah, that's it. That's Ohana I was looking for. That's the field I wanna dive into and build a career around. And that's essentially where I've been since. Welcome to the ATL Alt Podcast. I am your host, Andre Sindate, and I have designed a podcast to interview founders, fund managers, investors, allocators, CEOs, entrepreneurs, and executives whose stories I believe will inspire, educate, and inform. All of our guests are investing capital, raising funds, executing transactions, closing deals, and serving clients. And many, perhaps like you, have overcome long odds, setbacks, adversity, difficult circumstances, and more. Through all of this, a story emerges, and it's typically the source and inspiration for why they're pursuing what they're doing today. Join us on ATL Alts, where our guests will take you on a personal and professional journey that will inspire, educate, and inform. Our guest this week on the ATL Alts podcast is Neil Takamoto, founding director of Be The Change Cooperative based in Washington, D.C. Neil's focus at Be The Change Cooperative is bringing together leaders and change agents who believe in the power of their own communities. Neil is also the founder of CSPM Group, which is a crowdsourced placemaking firm providing a triple bottom line crowdsourced placemaking system that develops long tail markets for small towns to large cities that crowd invest in places they support from revitalizing a main street to redeveloping several downtown blocks. If you're somebody who's always asked the question, why don't we have this in our neighborhood or how do we bring that type of development to our community. Neil and his team have a system and a model which allows individuals without real estate experience and without significant amounts of capital to design, govern, and own places where they can be the change they wish to see in the world. I hope you'll enjoy my conversation with Neil Takamoto, founder of Be The Change Cooperative. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the ATL Alts Podcast. This is your host, Andres Sandate. And this week, I am joined by founder of Be The Change Cooperative, Neil Takamoto, based in Washington, D.C. Neil, welcome to the ATL Alts Podcast. Thank you for having me here. It's a total privilege. I like to jump right in with my guests. Tell me about where you're from. I'm from Hawaii originally. Lived there until I went to university in the, in the mainland, as we call it, the West Coast, California, then Oregon. Growing up in Hawaii, it's kind of its own country. And I think I definitely have a unique perspective on community and culture from growing up there. We like to spend a fair amount of time before jumping in to kind of understand the backstory as to the projects and kind of the motivations of what you're doing. And that's kind of the, you know, the whole 
uh, tagline of our podcast is the backstory behind the numbers. So you grew up in Hawaii, you came to the mainland and stayed on the West coast for school. Did you have a good idea about what you wanted to study in, in university? Yeah. Well, like, you know, when we did a high school paper of like uh, what we wanted to do when we grew up, I, my art, my paper was building a mass transit system on, in Honolulu and on the island of Oahu. I don't know why I created that, but like I, I was looking for something that was about urban planning, but building something, something creative. So I, I didn't know, quite know what degree that was. So the closest thing I could think of was civil engineering. And then four days before my first day of class at college, four days before I had an epiphany, like, no, it's not civil engineering, it's architecture. And uh, the school was at, did not offer architecture. So I literally knew I was transferring from the university before the first day of classes started. So I shifted to architecture and that was the degree that had me shifted towards urban planning, design, thinking about communities. And it wasn't until like the later years that I discovered a field called uh, new urbanism, which whose founder, one of the founders actually has the same name as you, Andres, Andres Duani. And they formed the Congress for the new urbanism about creating a new era of urban planning that was based on walkable, mixed-use, community-oriented development that de-emphasized cars and emphasized walking. You know, kind of sounded like you knew early on some of the things that you were most interested in. Was there something in your background and your family that got you interested in urban planning and mass transit? I mean, that's a lot of sort of heady stuff for a teenager. (laughs) Yeah, it is. Some of the influences are like um, me having three sisters. My parents, you know, both trusted us to to stay at home and entertain ourselves a lot. And so we kind of made up our own ways of like playing restaurant, playing house, playing make-believe of all kinds of things. So, you know, I was used to co-creating my own life at home. And also because we were kind of isolated in in a very rural area, felt like something was missing. And so, you know, one of those unmet needs in my childhood was like, um, seeing what world was out there. So once I left for school onto the quote mainland and I discovered this whole world, it was like, all right, that's it. I'm not, I'm not going back to Hawaii. There's this whole world out here that uh, just, there's so many more things to it. And the other part of Hawaii is that it's, it's very, there's a long history of why this is, but like, it's a very mixed race, mixed culture. Everything's mixed, culturally diverse. It's really a model of diversity in many ways. And so I was used to that. So then I went to the mainland and, you know, I wanted to connect. I, there was a part of me that was like something here in the mainland is missing, this cultural diversity and community and people treating friends and, and cousins like, or friends and associates like family. And so that ohana, as you, as you hear it in many of these movies lately, was something that was dear to me that I wanted to somehow manifest. And that when I discovered this field of new urbanism, which is essentially new realm of planning that was, it's about you know, creating more walkable places and places for uh, people to connect and create a stronger sense of community. That was like, oh yeah, that's it. That's Ohana I was looking for. That's the field I want to dive into and build a career around. And that's essentially where I've been since. There's always a fascinating backstory. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm always inspired. The opportunity to get into dialogue and have these real conversations. It's so rare in business that the idea behind the podcast was to try to find folks who would be willing and were excited about talking as to what the inspiration was really behind their venture, their fund, their strategy. And I, I, uh, I appreciate you sharing that. 
before we transition into some of the things you're doing uh, professionally now, have you, have you been back to Hawaii? There's a 10 year period where I hadn't gone back because there was a part of me that was so connected to building a new life in the mainland and all this diversity, like, oh, Hawaii doesn't have all those, all this culture, that, um, all these connections and all these things that I'm here at seeing. So I don't want to go back. It's too limited. And then after, after a 10 year period, it's like, you know what? Hawaii does have this incredible sense of community. So these things that were innate in me, didn't, I didn't really appreciate until enough time had passed. They said, what's missing here? It's really strong sense of community. And, and then, oh, Hawaii has that. Then I started to really miss it. So then I started going back home more often. And I've been going back every year since. And I haven't been able to go back for a couple of years now because of COVID, but uh, I'll be back in August. And um, yeah, I, I've, I re- I've never missed it more than I do now because it's been a couple of years. You've had a 30-year career doing sustainable and urban planning and impact real estate development. Tell us what that is. I'm going to borrow from a, a, a group that's actually worked really hard to define what impact is. So there's this book called uh, Real Impact, and it's uh, written by an author named um, Morgan Simon. And if you go to impact investment conferences, this book is one of the key books you will see at the book table all the time. And she's often a keynote speaker. And she defines impact, which is what the whole book is about. What is impact really? What is, that's why it's called real impact. It's got one key principle or definition. It is projects that are primarily designed, governed, and when feasible, owned by communities. And when you look at, I mean, it's got two other principles, which is investments add more value than they extract. And then the risks and rewards are shared by all stakeholders, meaning that everybody's you know, sharing the risk. But that primary definition, the first one, it, it, in my opinion, it really negates 99% of the projects that call themselves impact because they're not looking to have the project owned by the community. They're looking at saying, we know what the community wants. We're going to implement it, build the thing for them, and, uh, and then leave. The solutions where they're building a project to, to have people co-create and then own um, the solution. So it's not no longer managed by any outside entity, co-create and owned by the community. Um, like say if they, you know, create an energy system or they create a school and that's completely owned by the community. And in the, in the end, that to me is what also the book defines as um, impact and which leads to why what we're doing is how do we create community development in a neighborhood where it's ultimately owned by the community. And that's almost rarely the case. It's usually owned by a foundation or a government or a private sector or, 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 you know, some group, but it's almost never collectively owned by a community. And in many ways, you actually really even, even, couldn't even legally do that until recently. So as the founding director of Be The Change Cooperative, you bring together leaders and, you know, what you call change agents who believe in the power of their own community, their own backyard. So tell us about the work you're doing at Be The Change Cooperative. Right. I mean, the reason why you hear this term NIMBY, not in my backyard, it's because it's a response to outside people coming in and, you know, developing what they think the neighborhood needs or want. In fact, not even what the neighborhood needs. It's a way for them to actually, you know, create something that's going to create a return on their investment, really. Um, And people are saying, well, not in my backyard. Are you going to do that? There's a movement called a YIMBY movement, which is yes, in my backyard, and that movement is any kind of development that allows the community, and again, to fit the definition of impact, um, to design, govern, and own what that development is. And the simple uh, tool that's necessary for that to happen is the ability to co-invest in real estate. And until recently, 
only what what's known as accredited investors could collectively invest in real estate. Accredited investors are basically high net worth individuals. And the reason being, as, as, the, um, as these laws had used to state, that only, quote, high net worth individuals, essentially rich people, could invest in real estate is because anyone who wasn't shouldn't be taking on that kind of risk. And, you know, we don't want to be on the hook for when people lose their money in real estate. Now we have basically have to fund their, um, you know, um, their livelihood. I mean, that's, to me, just a pretty weak reason to give an excuse to just give control to the, you know, the few people who, as, as we all know, that's typically what you see, right? That it's the 1% that controls so much. So because crowdfunding and crowd investment has started to permeate so many things. And so because of that shift to the sharing economy, like Airbnb and Uber and all that, even that in the capitalist world has started to allow people to co-create their own transportation system, their own hospitality system, is that they couldn't leave real, they, real estate now no longer had a stranglehood and only high net worth individuals. They had to let go of that. And, and it's a sad thing because before then, because the only way, the, the number one way of how to build your net worth was real estate. So if they kept saying no, the best way to build your net worth was real estate, but you couldn't, if you were basically below a certain income level, you couldn't invest in real estate, then how in the world were you supposed to create, you know, increase your net worth? This is why the income, this is largely why there's a increasing income gap and high net worth, uh, net worth gap. This is largely why. So because of that jobs act that passed in 2012, they basically legalized crowdfunding in real estate. You literally could not do that until 2012. And then it took a few more years before that actually got leg- um, happened in, in where we could practically do it. So now that you can collectively invest in real estate, the idea of a cooperative now actually makes sense. But why did you build this platform instead of working for government or working in a foundation? The primary, well, you know, one of the main reasons why I'm going down this route, A, it's because it's more fun. Um, it's like, it's like if you want to do something fun and creative and cooperative and visionary, you're not going to change large institutions to do it because they're just going to continue doing things the way they've always had, right? That, that, cause that's why it's an institution to continue doing things the way it's always been to actually create any kind of change, especially radical change has to come from a small group of people. And so how do you do that yet finance it? Because, um, you know, if you're going to do something in real estate, you're going to need high net worth capital, which typically comes from high net worth individuals. And so how are you going to find the people who typically have this capital, but kind of want to do things their way if they're going to put money in. So the idea of like, well, what if you crowdfund it, you know, crowdsource the investment, um, then that allows more innovation and creativity because you say, hey, we want to build something unique and different in this neighborhood. Say this neighborhood is missing workforce housing and co-working space for uh, businesses and a food hall and a um, coffee house and a distillery and a child care center and a performing arts and an event space. What if we built this ourselves and collectively funded it? And then you got 500 plus people that say, hey, I want to invest in that and contribute to, to that financially. And so you create a cooperative because that's the way you can actually collect, um, do the governance and ownership of such a, thing, such a thing versus like a few individuals. And that's literally what happened in Traverse City, Michigan with this building, this four-story, 50,000 square foot building that has everything I just mentioned. So that becomes a model for other people to do the things that they want to co-create and see in their neighborhood. And yeah, the idea of a cooperative is just, it's just a practical way to do that because if you're going to have the community collectively invest in something, then 
it seems logical to allow them to collectively own what they put their money into. Let's talk about that project in Traverse City, Michigan. You have a, a community building. It's a four-story building. It's owned by 500 members. Do they all live in Traverse City, Michigan? And maybe before we jump into that, why Traverse City, Michigan? Yeah, it just happened to be where the, uh, the champion, the person with a vision, and who is an uh, attorney that was progressive and was willing to actually take these newfound tools like this Jobs Act legislation and learn how to cre- create the model that would you know, take advantage of those changes. So it just took a visionary that was willing to spearhead uh, a new model and you know, really kind of like in many ways, take on a lot of sacrifices of not getting paid for a couple of years because nobody knew what, knew what this was. And then just to you know, cut to the chase a little bit, she's actually working with me to actually create this project as an open source model to teach other people how to do this. Andres, I'm hoping you, know, you or someone you know is that person because it, it's, none of this happens without that one person that wants to do it. And then once you have that, we have a membership where like as little as $10 a month, you can actually start to learn. How, is it, how is this being done? What's the, what are the FAQs of a cooperative? What are the steps involved in doing this? What are case studies of projects that are done? Um, who are other people doing this? This is the membership we provide where it's not going to be like, I can't afford a lawyer or I can't hire a consultant team. Or like it's, if you can't afford $10 a month, then it's probably not something you're entirely serious about. It's really kind of a low barrier to entry as far as learning about how to do that. If you're doing a real estate development, you know, these are two, $3 million projects. The idea of having a real estate consulting team on board from 50 to $150 to $500 a month is a fraction of what development costs, which are, you know, two, three, four, five thousand $5,000 a month just in legal fees alone. These are things that we're providing cost effectively because we've created templates and modules that are used elsewhere already that you can just sort of plug in and tweak with minor changes. And so as far as like the legal expertise of how to set up a cooperative, setting up a crowdfunding platform, actually have, providing the platform itself working with the right banks that already get crowdfunding and know how to leverage community investment with loan guarantees, with high net worth individuals and making sure they're all working together and educated about like the best financing solutions for your project. And also how to accommodate people who actually want to provide lower interest rates or donations and how to accommodate that, accommodate that and inspire others to contribute to that. These are all part of the tools and, th- and, pl- and people and networks and resources that we help provide so that we are helping you build the team and train the team so that your team is not only trained on how to do this, but actually now training other people to do this because so it becomes a standard form of development in your neighborhood where whenever you're wondering why doesn't our neighborhood have this or this or this, I hope a developer one day builds it versus like, hey, let's just build what we want to build because that's what we want to build. And we know how we can collectively pull our own resources. Developers are building these things in your neighborhood because, you know, they figured out ways to make money off of it. So why can't the returns be to local teams that do this versus outside developers? And I, you know, when I traveled the world and I went to places like Venice and all over Europe and I came across these car-free districts, where it's like public markets, people on the streets, no cars anywhere. It's completely pedestrian, pedestrian zones. And, 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 and yet, then there's like other kinds of evidence, like in Copenhagen, these car free areas have, they serve it to be like some of the happiest people in the world, right? Not a coincidence. It's like, um, and then they all also say, when kids get to roam free, they're happier kids. They get to explore freely. So like 
how can we, why, why isn't there any place in the US that has pedestrian zones, right? We're completely dominated by everything, every single street in this, in this country, except for a few streets are basically thoroughways for cars. And what is it gonna take for, for us to actually build these car-free neighborhoods, streets, zones? And it's like, you know, we could either try to convince institutions or people collectively co-create their own places, their own neighborhoods, their own streets, their own and such. And it's like based on the trends, it was like far vast, vastly easier to do it in the, in the latter um, because the institutions had no interest in whatsoever in actually changing the current model. So the route of crowdsourcing was like since 10 years ago, I knew this is the route that was going to make it happen. It's the, there's, there was a large market that wants these places and there's practically no organization that exists to actually create such places. So if we organize the people to actually define what it is that they wanted in terms of like, what would this development look like? What would the street look like? What these places look like? We could actually raise the capital collectively, create a, you know, an organization, create a movement, create an initiative, create a cooperative, whatever it was going to take, uh, and then literally start to co collectively develop such a place. So it was more kind of a pipe vision and I knew it was going to be possible. And it was just a matter of, I kept thinking it was going to be happening in the next couple of years and, you know, 10, 15 years later, now we're where we are and I feel like, okay, now we're finally there. And in the meantime, another thing, another area of influence to me was eight years ago going to Burning Man where 80,000, well back then maybe 70, 60,000 people in the middle of nowhere co-created a city that functioned in many ways like a, uh, like a prototype city um, where there were no cars, where there's no uh, Wi-Fi, no cell phone, and no, no cell phone coverage at all. And people just learn how to communicate and compete to bring joy in other people. That organization that I got to know that really fostered a, a, a millions of people around the world that wanted to take, how can we create this culture of bringing joy in other people beyond Burning Man into our own neighborhoods where we could co-create our own quote magic that we get in this place in the desert, right? So that these are all things that are starting to trend that I'm starting to overlap and bring together. Crowdfunding, Burning Man, Emergence, uh, uh, the connection to nature, um, and, uh, a return to like indigenous culture as far as uh, learning um, practices. All these things are starting to merge into this singular sort of um, uh, mindset of like, how can we create a simpler co-created culture where people actually have a say in shaping their own environments. So how does crowdfunding play a role in a cooperative development? Two, you know, fairly uh, new ideas. They're old ideas, but they're fairly new as far as application in the U.S. The idea of cooperatively owned real estate development and the idea of crowdfunding. Two entirely separate things, but they work really well together. And the way they would work together on a, on a, development project anywhere is that because it's cooperatively owned, no individual by cooperative is by definition, one person, um, one person, one vote. So it means like, oh, but I put in a hundred times more money than the other person. You still only get one vote, no matter what. So it's, it's, it's by law uh, mandatory to be democ a democracy. That's a, that's the definition of cooperative legally. Um, so, how do you, so what if, if someone puts a hundred thousand dollars in and someone puts in a hundred dollars, how does, how does that manifest in terms of like, you know, what you get out of it? Well, 
in a cooperative and because no person can own more than another person if someone puts in more money it's just treated as a as a um as a loan so if someone puts a hundred thousand dollars in and it's basically acting as a loan um that they get interest on um and so the idea of like uh, financing these cooperatives is that it's completely funded through uh lending um there, when you buy shares in one of these developments, and the, the Michigan model has it where you just turn in, put in, you just need fifty dollars to actually have an ownership share because they want it to be inclusive. Otherwise, you have the same problem. If it's if it's a thousand dollars to own a share, then you're cutting out a large part of the population that can never be owners. And owner and contributions to a building come in many more ways than just money. If you want to like be a patron and you can bring lots of friends to it and then, you know really happen and create the culture, but you don't have a thousand dollars, so you can't be an owner you know, that's a lot, that's a wasted opportunity. So the way these things are funded is largely through lending. It's cr essentially crowd lending. And one of the partners we work with is a group called Symbol. And th what they do is they, they've educated banks around the country to say, if a community is lending to a project that the collective um, ownership of these people invested in making this project successful is a safer loan than um, a project where once a high net worth individual is uh, providing the collateral to actually, um, um, if, if the thing falls through, then this high net worth individual will basically guarantee that the project is, uh, you know, I'll, 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 I'll front the money if the project falls through. Um, it, but it doesn't guarantee the success of the project. It just guarantees that the, the bank will get payback if the project falls through. But with it, what they found with it, when you get the community involved, the project is a significantly less risk of falling through in the first place where you don't even need the collateral. And so once banks are realizing that these projects are not gonna foreclose because this community is invested in making it successful, that's a far better investment than just basically going with the uh, one project with the one individual guaranteeing it won't fail. You have to have somebody, it sounds like, that has somewhat of that social capital to sort of start to generate interest and build a vision for what does our community want? What What's the cooperative expected to do? It's not run where like 500 people are going to make decisions. The 500 people own the project and they vote in who are, who's going to run, the pro who's going to manage the project. So the way to practically do that is they vote in the board of directors that manages the project or basically the board of directors then manages the staff that runs the project. So... If um, if things are not running smoothly or the the project's you know the building's not basically um, adhering to the principles of the project, then the committee can vote in vote out the leadership and vote in new leadership. But it, it's essentially yeah, it's a democracy in terms of like let's vote in people who will run the project that actually get what the vision is and get what the values are, and we'll, we'll basically hold them accountable. And then you have a, a, a basically a launch process where I assume you're putting this out to the public through a website and through communications, but there's probably a whole other series of steps around going right. and working with the city and working, you know, the, the actual development itself. You've got soft costs, you've got hard construction costs, maybe you have yeah. to acquire land. So this yeah. is not something that you're doing in six to 12 months. What are yeah. some of the more salient timelines that you like a minimum of two years, like, and it, it depends on how simple the project is. If you're looking at, say, a building that's just empty, but it's fully developed and it's just empty and you just got to have to fill it with the right tenants, you could do the whole thing in a year. You know, buy the building, 
Um, I mean, like a, the simplest model that involves a cooperative is if the building is already owned by someone in the community that wants to turn it into a cooperative. So you're going to have to buy it. The person just who owns the building just allows the cooperative to slowly form and buy it out from them. And they don't, yep. they're not going to hold them, you know, to a timeline because this, this person who owns the property is a high net, say a high net worth individual who is acting as a foundation is just as I want to give this, I want to, they can either gift the building or just allow them time to actually buy it out over time as the revenues of the building collect to actually pay for it. So they could actually sure. the mortgage, hold the mortgage themselves. So in that sense, the community could take the building instantaneously and start to program um, what goes in there, like, you know, within months. So it, it's, it's really as a matter of like, um, who is willing to provide that ownership transfer, a, a building owner who's already there, or if the community has to assemble themselves to actually collect, raise the money to then buy the building. And then, or, or if, it's a, if it's a heavy construction job, there's a lot of renovation, or if you're building something from scratch from the ground up that can, you know, take it to five years. So it's, it's got, you know, you can take it from months to years, depending on how complex the project is. You mentioned it earlier, strip centers and 1960s and 70s constructed shopping malls. What do you think happens to all that real estate? Well, it depends on what kind of real estate. So like, for instance, there's a real estate that's developed, say anything that's developed in the 20s and 30s and before that, that's very pedestrian oriented before the whole automobile, um, single family manufactured or home building suburban, you know, industries took off. Those are, those are your typical downtowns that are walkable and mixed use that have empty buildings in it. So those are great candidates because they fit the culture of what people are saying they want. The models, the, the, the real estate that was developed by institutions um, to create a car culture or, or, you know, chains or like shopping malls and um, regional malls and strip malls and office parks that are gone empty. Those were developed with single use profit minded, you know, goals. And so they're failing now because no one wants those anymore. So just because they're free buildings that are empty, those are not the kinds of investments I would recommend anyone because they're outdated. They're outdated. That's why they're mm -hmm. empty. So nothing can make them work. Like the Michigan project in Traverse City, their mission states that we want to create a healthy, walkable, urban downtown, not urban, but like a walkable, pedestrian-oriented downtown. So like at be the change co-op, that's our website. If you go there, um, we've put as many resources as possible so that you can learn things on your own. One way to learn about this movement is to look at the Common Grounds project, that 500-member cooperative building that's being developed in Traverse City, Michigan. That's commongrounds.coop. It's an open source project. So you go to their website, everything you need to, most everything you need to know about their project is on their website to learn about it. And another way is we've set up different levels of membership with the Be The Change from a $10 a month where you can learn the FAQs and take courses about how to do these things to one where you're actually creating a partnership where we'll actually train you and your staff to actually develop one of these. So th there's different levels of, of how to learn. Um, there isn't a book that exists of how to develop a place-based cooperative in your neighborhood. That does not exist but we're working on creating a guide from the people who've created the, uh, the Traverse City, Michigan project and create this uh, place-based cooperative playbook. And in the meantime, 
we have a membership portal where the case studies of developing these places are being documented and created as courses. So that is being developed as we speak through the Be The Change uh, Cooperative. You've been able to build almost a 30-year career now, uh, and you've seen lots of change and, and probably lots of talk around people wanting walkable cities, wanting to have less of an environmental impact. Does this moment we're in, does this feel different to you? Uh, has, has COVID had any role? Has it played any role in the trajectory of, you know, cooperative-based development? There's one person who's a very, there's something, there's a term called self-organization and self-organization means the ability to do like nature basically is entirely, entirely self-organizing. There's nobody in nature, no entity in nature telling any, anything in nature what to do. It's completely emergent. And therefore the term they use is self-organizing. And so taking those principles of self-organization to the civilized world, it's, 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 a, it's a completely foreign idea because we're so used to doing things top down. But COVID has flattened what they call flattened the bowl. If you're thinking of yourself as this marble in the middle of a really deep bowl, to roll yourself out of that bowl is going to take a huge amount of effort. But COVID has basically flattened that bowl. So given that everything's flattened out, it's given people to, to really basically reinvent how they want to do things, how they want to correct, how, how they want to create community. People have been a lot more open to actually saying, um, hmm, now that I kind of have this way of resetting what I want to do, I would rather just work with a community of people that I'm aligned with and create the lifestyle, the culture, and the community I want because now everything's been reset. Now, how does a community come together and organize itself to pull off a community cooperative development? It seems like a significant amount of coordination. What is it that the community wants to see happen? Who's willing to invest in that vision? And how do you organize, coordinate, making decisions and based on here's what the community wants, how do you take what the community wants collectively from all these different opinions and, and values and ideas that are shared and decide on which, what should be built from all of that and then go through the process so that people feel like this is what we actually said we wanted. That is a constant exercise in social capital to make sure people's voices are heard and executed and manifested. As far as government capital, it really comes down to letting the local government allow this to happen, whatever, whatever it is. If it's a mixed use development or if it's a, a project where people don't want cars, so you don't need parking. You know, some of these things are like, sometimes government doesn't allow these things because 50 years ago, these institutions said, we need to make all development require parking because we want to further the, the automobile movement and all buildings need to be single use because that furthers the automobile movement and everything's single use. It spreads everything out, which makes it easier for, you know, to permeate the car culture. So because we're shifting away from that now to like a more of a walkable community, things like mixed use zoning and, and no parking necessary are, are basically by law required and, 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 and that we're basically Mixed use walkable developments are illegal to d develop in many, most neighborhoods in this country. So if it, the people want it, they have to work with government to actually change laws that have been created by institutions decades ago to allow the, the construction of what people really want. This, this is why you see so many strip malls and regional malls and office parks. It's because that's all you're legally allowed to build. There are limitations to what cities or what states uh, or what's the profile of a community that 
uh, a group of people that wanted to do a co-op development could could pursue? Well, the beauty of this thing I mentioned earlier in the podcast is this new urbanism movement. The Congress yeah. for the New Urbanism is the organization started in 1992 is, uh, I guess what's, it's been like uh, almost 30 years, is they have successfully educated planning departments from around the country that the current mo- the, the model back then of like having auto-oriented zoning, where you, everything was single use, you had to, you know, provide lots of parking, it was single use, could only be a, it could only be retail, it could only be housing, it could only be office. And that's all coming from uh, the home building industry and the auto building industry, which is really not what you want to base community on, right? So they were successful in actually convincing cities that there should be a, an alternative way of planning your cities other than, ha- other than having everything be auto-oriented. So now every city in the, I believe, it, I feel like every city in the country is, is aware that a pedestrian-oriented model is a powerful alternative that they should allow people, if they want to shift a pedestrian-oriented model, that that is a good thing for the community because it is what people want. And there, there are enough developments around the country that are now happening that cities can see, wow, these are doing economically well. They're very well um, attended or populated or inhabited. So they're, all, they're pretty much all educated on this being a powerful alternative model. There are a lot of powerful interests on the other side that want to continue build, you know, developing things the old way. So that's, always, that's going to go on for a while. But like now, cities are aware that there is an alternative. So if, if you, in any community, if the community rallied together and said, we want to have this zoning change or this pedestrian-oriented zoning that's happening in like these 20 places in this region alone, it's not that hard to actually convince the government to actually change their zoning. So in many ways, that's no longer the kind of uh, obstacle there used to be. Now the major obstacle is is capital. How do you get capital to actually shift towards funding a model that's now legal? Uh, one of one of the important uh, pieces of information that that I think should should get out there is around uh, the Collective Impact Lab. Can you tell us about that? The Collective Impact Lab is essentially a blog I've started back in two thousand three. It has 1,700 articles on it by now, and it was just a it was just me writing about this movement, this shift towards co-created communities that wasn't being talked about. I think I've, I write just a few articles a, a year now. It used to be called something else, CoolTownStudios.com, uh, but like it's it you know that was back way back when when you know I didn't know what this field was called, but I, I use the word collective impact now because collective impact is defined as a group of people coming together to solve a complex problem through a shared effort with a common vision. Collective impact lab is essentially a listing of all the experiments and movements and ideas that people are using to actually move in that direction. What's your big vision for be the change cooperative? It'd be the manifestation of the collective vision of what people want to see in their neighborhood. Everyone is the most educated, informed expert of what should be in their neighborhood. But none of them are asked, much less on a daily or even weekly or yearly even basis, how can we implement what your vision is for your neighborhood of what will make it better, healthier, more fun, more vibrant. The vision of Be The Change co- um, Cooperative is, is the realization of what would happen if you took the collective vision of everyone in the community and allowed them to invest in their own vision participate in their own vision, be the entrepreneurs and business owners and tenants 
the patrons of their own vision and see what happens. And not only that, but also network with them, with, with people from around the world, around the country that are also doing that. So it's almost like a friendly competition of who can create the most compelling, vibrant, friendly, interactive, community-oriented, happiest places in their neighborhood. And always have that be the competition. Let's shift gears and talk a little bit about some projects, perhaps a little closer to where I live. There's a neighborhood south of Atlanta called Serenby. I've uh, known about it for 20 years. I've hosted a roundtable developers forum where they participated 20 years ago. Overall, just thoughts or opinions on these projects? These are new developments and any new development, not affordable to the masses because new construction is so expensive. And they're also not trying to be, they're, they're not apologizing for gearing towards uh, the upper end of incomes because they know new development is expensive. So it's, it's almost like they can't help but be inaccessible to the majority of people because otherwise they would need government subsidy. As you think about growing Be The Change Cooperative, what are some of the takeaways from some of these projects that we can incorporate or look for in our own backyard? Number one, you know, the, the main tenet of new urbanism is walkability. So that is by far one of the most profound changes in modern urban planning is to create walkable environments where you don't need to drive everywhere. And then uh, as far as wellness is uh, having places to like um, socialize and interact and connect with people naturally. That's also another key component of walkable urban planning and new urbanism as well. The key is how do you create these places where they're accessible for connection by everyone and not just people of higher incomes. The idea of cooperative ownership where you're allowing people who have more capital to invest in places that people who have less capital can reside in and interact is something that isn't accessible right now. If people have, for instance, if you had, um, if you wanted to contribute to, a, to uh, creating more places of connection, where could you possibly effectively invest or contribute money towards creating such places in your own neighborhood? It's not, it's not a readily available model. You'd probably have to find a, you probably have to actually find a nonprofit developer that shares your vision, that's committed to also working with government subsidies. The idea of have, simplifying it, where if you're interested in, in contributing towards a vision to make more places of connection and community and interaction and allow simpler models for people to invest or donate or contribute towards projects with people that share your values, that's essentially the platform that naturally ex existed years ago, like the whole barn raising with the Amish or um, in indigenous cultures, people just simply co-create what they want. Now we're in a system where if you want to invest in real estate, you have to be accredited and, or you know, high net worth individual. And so like, it's just about flattening the model to allow more people to participate and co-create what they want to see. If you had a more collaborative cooperative project where a foundation, a high net worth individual could contribute half the money, uh, fourth of the money um, to this collaboratively owned, cooperatively owned project, now suddenly the cost per square foot has been reduced by 25% or 50%. So it, does, it no longer is a factor, but like it, it just comes down to money. If you're a private sector developer developing something, there's no one, no one's gonna to contribute towards making that costing less because no one's gonna trust that private sector developer to be using money towards affordability. They're just gonna to assume that they're just gonna gear it towards more profit. 
but if you've got a collaborative, a cooperative that is by nature one person, one vote, and is a nonprofit by structure as a cooperative, then it is by law and by deed and by constitution that the project is a community serving uh, project that is looking out for the community's best needs. Big development is accelerating gentrification in several historically black communities in cities like Atlanta, where I live, particularly with the booming development around the Atlanta Beltline. And in 2015, Atlanta's first co-living company called The Guild was started. And The Guild is interesting in the context of our conversation in that it aims to employ a systems approach, according to its website, to create collaborative, inclusive, and sustainable communities with the aim of addressing the root causes of economic inequality. So my question for you is, you talked about new urbanism was more focused on the real estate. There are elements, it sounds like, in all of these uh, more progressive ways of thinking about development where there's trying to do more than address just walkability in the real estate. What are some lessons we can take away from those types of movements or projects? The baseline, again, is what is impact. And that's where the book I mentioned, Real Impact, impact is defined as projects that are primarily designed, governed, and when feasible, owned by communities. That's why, you know, that is not a factor in new urbanism. Ownership is not a factor. It's just the urban planning of the built environment, urban development of the built environment. Who owns it isn't one of the key principles of new urbanism. What the Gale does is it brings in, it prioritizes who owns it. New urbanism is typically one of a few developers that develop everything. It's private sector owned. What the Gale introduces is that how can we get that ownership more into the hands of people in the local community? And in some cases, specifically people of color or, or, or um, you know, minority developers and minority businesses. So it's like it's moving in the direction towards sovereignty and local development, and local ownership, which is gearing towards what impact is. And then what I, one thing that they are introducing the idea of cooperatives. They have introduced the idea of cooperatives where people can cooperatively um, manage or, or um, be members in uh, co-living communities or maybe uh, investing or, or being part of co-owners and businesses. And then the next step, which I'm sure they'll be very open to and very embracing of is bringing cooperative ownership to the buildings, cooperative ownership to the businesses, cooperative ownership to the co-living uh, buildings that they're developing and having the community outright own that collectively. So that's, you know, it's, it's, it seems very aligned with their vision. It's just a matter of coordinating that. It takes a lot of uh, legal work and a lot of organizational work that hasn't been, been organized very effectively in this country yet because, you know, the laws even didn't even allow it just a few years ago. So that's what we're working on is trying to make that uh, a lot simpler for people to use. Uh, and to do and actually assemble a, a national team that can actually help train and also consult locally so that you're not, you're, everyone's not reinventing the wheel on, on doing this, especially since no one's really done this before in this country. So, you know, I think what the work that the, the Guild uh, does is certainly in line with the idea of more cooperative ownership through all facets. Neil, do you have some final thoughts before we go to our rapid fire segment to the people listening who are interested in 
cooperative development in their own communities. Yeah, I mean, you know, like, you know, people for decades conditioned to, you know, the commute, to going to this institution, going to that, all the ways of doing things have been shut down. So it's like now people for the first time said, you know what, that lifestyle was really t- uh, taking a toll on my health, my uh, my creativity, uh, my happiness and my joy. And now that I've been able to actually reset, I was like, you know what, there's another way of doing things that I would rather be a part of. And right now it's like, well, I don't know how to create that, right? That's the, that's the opportunity here. It's like if we gave people the opportunity to say, now that you've seen how things were and you could actually take, take a breath and say, you know, that's not the lifestyle I want to live anymore. But how do I create the one I do? This is where we're providing that platform. Like how can we co-create what you really, the lifestyle you really do want to live? I like to finish up with what people are reading, what they like to do after work, any particular hobbies. So let's jump into that. What are some of the favorite books you have? My fav- one of my favorite books is a book called Stealing Fire. And it's a, it's a book about the flow state. And I have to define flow state because another thing, um, they define flow as, you know, when you hear about people in the zone where things become effortless and they're flowing and everything becomes magical and easy. And, uh, and they define flow as with this acronym of, of STIR, S-T-E-R, selflessness, timelessness, effortlessness, and richness richness of the senses. So, um, and so it's basically when you're feeling this level of that, when you say something like it doesn't get any better than this. And oftentimes it's when like, um, like where they're community with friends and simple things, they're having a drink with friends and laughing on a beach. Right. And it's like, this is like, it doesn't get any better than this. And then there are other moments of like when they're at a concert or, they're at a festival or a scene in nature. Um, but a lot of times it happens when there, there's a magical connection with people and it's extended over a period of time. We're like, oh, I wish this moment would never end. And so they wrote this book about all those kinds of moments and how to, where do they come from and what creates them. And they basically chalked it up to the, what, they, what they define as a $4 trillion economy of, of where we're moving towards from like the old days of agriculture to goods and services, to goods, to services, to experiences. And now it's about like transformational experiences of um, where people are now like looking for those moments of like um, intense, deep, meaningful connection. And so this book is about that. There's a, there's a chapter on it on Burning Man. Um, and there's a, um, sections on it. I'm like everything from plant medicine ceremonies to um, concerts to how music plays a role, but it is this whole field that I feel uh, people are now moving into. How can we create magical feelings of connection and community with people? Uh, Any, any great movies, any great shows that you won't miss documentaries? Yeah. Okay. Here's one. Um, Okay. And this may be like, this is maybe an alternative to the alternative. But um, there's a book, there's a movie called uh, Fantastic Fungi. Um, and it is about like how, it's about the, 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 the world of mushrooms. That's the title of the movie. Well, what's amazing about the movie is that, um, you know, there's a section about it, how this fungus network has its own internet below the ground, that they're all communicating to each other. Um, and then it basically, so they had the internet way before we had the internet and they're all in communication. So it's this fascinating movie about like how 
we have how connecting to the plant world makes us evolve human beings of how to create more emergent, connected, um, compassionate communities. At the same time, the plants may actually be doing their job to actually help us get there faster. What about for fun? What do you do? Any hobbies? Yeah, a couple. So one, I mean, I'm going to say this because it's a, it's a, it's related is, um, going to indigenous ceremonies where we gather around a campfire or gather around in community and they all share in a ceremony of like simple, as simple, like I mentioned as, as chocolate and the level of connection and vulnerability and ritualness creates a deeper sense of community and deeper level of understanding and, and sense of community and being part of that, the resulting um, connection and community and bond and trust and almost letting go of so many things that we thought we needed in community that come out of it. And, and just almost like a l- incredible amount of trust and connection that happens that after these end, ends of these ceremonies, people want to like, what can we do to work together to make a better world? Right. That's kind of what culturally happens after these things. And another fun thing I like to do is um, what's known as conscious dance, which is a, it's a way where people play music that evokes um, levels of um, whether it's like expression or letting go or conviction and power or overcoming inertia. It's, it's these almost like meditative, but proactive dances where people come together and, and go through these waves of music that help them um, go through cycles of life to actually collectively and individually empower themselves. Wow. Fascinating. Neil Takamoto the founding director of Be The Change Cooperative. It was a wide-ranging, but I felt impactful conversation today on the ATL podcast, and I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Andres. It was a blast. It was so much fun. I'd like to thank Neil Takamoto, founder of Be The Change Cooperative, for being a guest on ATL Alts. You can learn more about Be The Change Cooperative at their website, bethechange.coop. That's bethechange.coop. Co-op. You can also follow Neil on Twitter at Neil Takamoto. That's at N-E-I-L-T-A-K-E-M-O-T-O. And if you'd like to learn more about collective impact, triple bottom line placemaking, and crowdsourced placemaking, check out collectiveimpactlab.com for more information. You can find links, show notes, and transcripts to this week's show on our website at atlalts.com. Please tell a friend about the podcast and subscribe wherever you enjoy your favorite podcast. Don't forget to sign up for our mailing list and be the first to hear about subscriber-only events and content featuring special guests. Thank you very much for tuning in to our podcast. We always welcome your questions, feedback, and guest ideas. Please email us at info at atlalts.com and engage with us on social media at atlalts on Twitter, Facebook, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and LinkedIn.